Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello and welcome to the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we have a very special episode. We're going to look at the novel School of Velocity, a tale about best friendship with all that is contained in the term. The author is Eric Beck-Rubin, and it's hot off the presses. Best friendship with all that's contained in the term. What is contained in the term? Why is the relationship between two best friends different than the relationship between two friends, even two close friends? Or is the term relationship not quite right here? Is it too clean, too objective-seeming? When you're that close to someone else, how could you possibly see it objectively? Is it not more of a blur? School of Velocity tells the story of a friendship between Jan de Vries and Dirk Nussen. It's a first-person tale, and Jan is the one who does the telling. There's a brief introduction, which places Jan in the present day, in middle age, a successful concert pianist, Then the story goes back to his first encounter all those years ago at age 14 with the young Dirk. I saw Dirk before I met him. I saw him several times before I knew his name. He was like a new word that, once learned, you heard spoken everywhere, compelling attention, mine, yours, anyone's. That's Dirk in a few words. He radiates, magnetizes, charismifies. He's both centripetal and centrifugal, He draws everything towards him, while at the same time, spreading himself everywhere. Unique. Ubiquitous. So, when Dirk invites Jan to visit his house after school, along with Jan's girlfriend, Lisa, Jan thinks of it as a kind of initiation, a chance to peek into the other side. We walk through the living room and up the staircase. At the top was a narrow, carpeted hall, and the first door on the left was Dirk's room. It was about the same size as mine, but completely crammed. A bunk bed with the bottom bunk covered in baggy pillows and duvets, rickety bookshelves overflowing with books, magazines, stacks of photographs, records, and, as a centerpiece, a hi-fi stereo with silver turntable and shoebox-sized speakers. His desk was buried under papers, and his cupboard overstuffed with shirts and sweaters and jeans, none of which was part of the school uniform. The walls were painted a deep blue-green and plastered with posters of bands I knew, like The Beatles and Ike and Tina Turner, and movies I'd never heard of, like Dr. Strangelove and Amar Kord. Dirk makes Jan feel at home, quizzes him about his progress with Lisa. Have they Frenched? Has he touched her breasts? And tells the stories that become his trademark. Adventures in petty crime and adolescent prurience, The stuff Jan would do, if only he had Dirk's guts, his style, his fearlessness. But it's not just Jan who admires Dirk, it's Lisa too. And before Jan can figure out the purpose of the visit to Dirk's house, he finds that Lisa has dumped him and taken up with a magnetic and charismatic Dirk. So it was all a setup, right? Dirk playing the friend, getting close, and deftly cutting Jan out of the picture. Well, yes and no. 
the person being cut out of the picture was Lisa, not Jan. Just as soon as Dirk begins to date her, he drops her, and it's like water off a stone to Dirk, who once again draws Jan into his world. Coincidentally, or so it seemed at the time, I began to see even more of Dirk. At the start of the school day, while locking up my bike, between classes, while walking through the halls, during lunch hour in the cafeteria at the next table over, Mr. Everywhere, with an unlit cigarette in his mouth, laughing louder than anyone else after jokes, low-fiving friends and strangers, air-pistoling imaginary targets, all long strides and billowing shirts. Once or twice, while passing his group as they ate lunch and played poker, I thought I heard him call out my name, DeVries, as if he wanted me to join them. But I didn't think he was serious, so I pretended I didn't hear him. Until one day after school, the hallway around our lockers emptied out, and it was just Dirk and me. Jan will resist. Jan should resist. Here is the man who stole his girlfriend under his nose. But that's the thing with Dirk. His voice is a siren call, and once Jan hears it, he's drawn in once again, and this time, much deeper. The depths, the contours, the highs, and the opposites of those highs are the subject of the greater part of this short novel. Jan and Dirk go to St. Ansfried, an art school, where Jan specializes in music. He's a pianist. And Dirk is in the drama program, an actor in training, as well as scriptwriter, director, producer, and impresario. Jan's progress is steady. Dirk, however, seemed to have been born at the top of the mountain. Everything he does is brilliant. Everything he touches turns to gold. It culminates in the big splash that Dirk makes with his last theatrical production, Gargantua Redux. Dirk had long talked about turning Gargantua and Pantagruel, required reading in grade 10, into a play. I'm not sure he'd actually read the novel, or even half of it, but he often recalled the bits he'd picked up about dirty monks, corrupt bishops, cloisters, drinking, war, rogering, swearing, cod pieces, exotic animals, decapitation, floods of urine, and grand speeches to the people, and was determined to transform it into a show. It'll be a demonstration of pure Durkian nonsense, he said. Somehow, he persuaded the head of the drama department to give him the run of the studio. He wrote up a script and cast everyone from his class, Pym, Perm, Beata, even Lees, putting himself in the lead as Gargantua. He moved the story to a Japanese setting, included a silent chorus, and left stretches of dialogue in the original French. And in a grand gesture, he had an upright hauled onto the stage so I could play in the background through most of the action. An original sequence, he promised. It will be genius. Dirk predicts the play will be booed, that people will hate it, like the response to anything too avant-garde. But it's just the opposite. A smash hit, standing room only, extra nights. Dirk and Jan celebrate the success with a wild party at Dirk's house, and live off the fumes post-graduation and all through their last summer. And then Dirk leaves for America, and Jan leaves for Maastricht, where he's been accepted on scholarship to a music academy to pursue his piano performance studies. Jan takes it for granted that the separation will be temporary, and, in the larger scheme, insignificant. The expectation is that he and Dirk will go on like before, 
and he waits with impatience as Christmas break draws closer to when he'll see his best friend again. Christmas comes, Nyan goes home, but what he expects is not what occurs. As Yan is the person who tells the story, we follow his life from that point forward, and it's a life immersed in music. Yan performs exceptionally at the Music Academy, and after a stalled beginning to his career, he becomes a success, not as a solo pianist, which was what he'd envisioned, but as an accompanist, specializing in late 19th and early 20th century romantic music. As he rises through the field, aided in his pursuits by his girlfriend, Lena, who eventually becomes his wife, Jan plays with everyone from Philippe Honoré to Dietrich Fischer Dieskau in concert halls in Vienna, Paris, New York, Los Angeles, and beyond, fulfilling the expectations that Dirk had laid out for him when they were still in St. Ansfried. For Jan, being completely enfolded in the world of music means that he's also brought back to a different kind of music, the songs and albums that Dirk played for him in his youth. One side of Dirk may have been supportive of Jan's development as a classical musician, but the other side of Dirk, and there were always many sides to Dirk, relentlessly mocked Jan for his interest in, and love of, string quartets and cello suites and symphonic music that Dirk compares to flatulence and dog barking. Real music, Dirk insists, was played by Otis Redding and James Brown, the Velvet Underground and Maceo Parker. And as with everything else in their friendship, Dirk's tastes overran Jan's, and the funk and soul songs that rang from Dirk's speakers during the hours the two boys hung out together are sewn into Jan's recollections of those days, communicating to the present-day Jan through music, even as the friends no longer speak to one another in words. Parenthetically, the author has made up a soundtrack album for the novel, with Dirk on the A-side and Jan on the B and can be checked out on the website ericbeckrubin.com slash the-soundtrack. To tell any more of the plot of this novel is maybe to delve too deeply into the secrets of the story and of the friendship between Jan and Dirk, of what this friendship seemed like to Jan when he was young, and what it seems like to him years later still lingering over the details, with the reader wondering how many of these details he has right. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books, we'll be returning to the to trilogy or not to trilogy season, which looks at novels that form parts of trilogies. Richard Ford, Ford Maddox Ford, Pat Barker, Elena Ferrante, Amitav Ghosh, Roddy Doyle, and Josip Novakovic, look out. Burning Books is part of the Latopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach us there via the email the show button, all by going to latopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. On Facebook, he can be reached at facebook.com slash Eric Beckrubin. Eric thanks Hakan Osgon for the music. Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. First word is vitamins. Vitamins, oh my god. Natalie Matheson, that would be me for this special episode. Okay, cool. <laughs> and as always, go Jays. <laughs> <laughs>